Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. The Leadership Learns podcast brings you inspiring stories from diverse global leaders from a range of different organizations and industries on how they innovate and improve to become the best possible leader. With me today is Maurizio Pillu, founder and managing director of Safety Tech Accelerator Limited, a Lloyd's Register company and vice president at Lloyd's Register. Maurizio has nearly 30 years experience in the digital sector, having worked extensively at Hewlett Packard and in national scale digital innovation. Maurizio, welcome. Thank you so much for being with me. How are you? And let's start with that obvious question that's joined us all in the last couple of years. How on earth have the last two years been for you? Last couple of years? Ah, it's a big question. I guess all of us have gone through a, a unique generation-defining experience, I suppose. Um, I think there will be people talking about the COVID generation at some point uh, in the future, I'm sure. I think it has been um, busy, but also very disruptive, uh, like enough to set up a new business during lockdown and creating a new team and hiring people that I've never met uh, into a new team and creating a bit of a company culture and, and processes and so on while working remotely. I think it's got to be one of the only, maybe the only time that a lot of us in leadership roles have been thrown into to a setup that none of us could control and that we didn't have any forecast in being able to plan for. Uh, I think there's been great humanity shown within the business community over the last couple of years. And I think it's important that there are as many voices uh, that can be talking about these stories as possible, because I think that hopefully by, by the repetition of such stories, one will keep it in people's minds, but secondly, will mean that we never go back to quite the selfish, inward looking perspective that maybe a few too many of us had beforehand. So yeah, it's interesting to hear your experience through that. And I, I always ask Maurizio as well, right at the beginning, to give a bit of context for people. And I'm sure everyone can can check you out on LinkedIn and, and kind of see the route that you've come down. And I, over a couple of minutes, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit of a, a run through of that, I think it would be great to hear how you got to where you got to today. As you can spot from my accent, uh, I'm Italian, um, but I've been living in the UK for us, coming up to 30 years almost, um, so quite quite a while. I started as um, just an ordinary child in a working class family, you know, living in a council estate in Milan, uh, but with a passion for, for engineering. And uh, that took me through um, a fairly ordinary in the grand scheme of things, but quite extraordinary for my setup in a council estate uh, to be one of the few people to go to university. And I was doing that while also working to support my studies. And um, after university, uh, I decided to start a doctorate, a PhD. And I started to look at uh, England and Scotland in particular, which is where I ended up doing a, a doctorate in uh, in AI, artificial intelligence, when it wasn't that fashionable. <laughs> Perfect timing uh, at Edinburgh University. And after that, I had to make a choice, actually, whether to stay in academia or to go to the corporate world. And I, I took the decision to go the corporate way rather than academia. And that took me through um, a career at Hewlett Packard Laboratories, which at the time was one of the top places to do this sort of stuff, computer vision to be specific. And I spent 10 wonderful years there. Um, then after that, uh, I, I did an MBA, an executive MBA, which was sponsored by my company. I was very technical. And, and uh, I think uh, together with the company, I wanted to get the other side of the equation for my career. Uh, 
um, which is the business side. So I did an, a part-time executive MBA. To cut a long story short, that took me after a while into a completely different career. And I went into management and then senior management. I started working in a venture capital company for a while, and then I worked for the UK government. And that took me basically into a completely different trajectory, career trajectory, uh, the one of strategy, investment, but also digital transformation and so on, less technical, more managerial. But then, um, you know, zooming forward to the past six years, then I went back from a quasi-governmental uh, situation like the digital catapult in the UK. I went back to the corporate world and I took a role at Lloyd's Register. So a long journey from hoping to become an engineer one day, a bit of a dream, to actually doing it and now um, being in a senior role, uh, always and still in technology. I, I found when we spoke before, Maurizio, uh, an interesting place to have a conversation about the progression from hands-on engineer, where clearly, as you say, that there's, there's a passion. There are lots of people that remain as engineers all of their working days because they enjoy it, they love it, and, and they don't want to do anything else, which is um, a pretty great place to be. But I think where I was interested to hear uh, and speak with you about today is that for those people listening that are thinking, do you know what? I wouldn't mind doing that journey as well. I wouldn't mind going from taking my hands-on skills and enjoy the engineering side to going into leadership and learning about corporate life. And the fact you did an executive MBA in 2004 after doing a PhD in AI in the mid to late 90s, Maurizio, it shows how serious you were to committing to what you wanted the blend of technology and corporate existence to be, because I know how um, how taxing and how much work has to go in to an executive MBA program, as well as as the cost as well. <laughs> but I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing what you found to be over the time that you've made that transition. And as I say, I don't think it's a full transition. I don't think you can ever turn off being an engineer. That's just the way, that's the makeup of your DNA, so to speak. But what have been the biggest challenges that you'd say moving from a, a hands-on engineering role into leadership over time? Uh, it's a very good question. I think, um, obviously, I was working in a corporate. You get exposed to business stuff all the time, okay? But I think the, the most difficult decision was to do it, to be honest, is actually to make the change. And that uh, was not easy, I have to say, because, well, it was in combination with leaving a, a company that I really loved and, and it was a great job and, you know, moving to, at that time, an investment role in a a small venture capital firm. The decision to do it was the the most difficult one, and the decision was really tough. And I remember many evenings thinking whether it was the right thing to do because you're not quite bought into the idea. Also, technical work is a lot of fun. I mean, kind of highly respected, I think I was, but anyway, I suspect highly respected technical person. You really know what you're doing and you go to this crazy world of um, case investment, managing people where you kind of feel losing a bit of control. There is an element of control when you do technical work. You kind of nicely define your your role. So yes, uh, the decision to do it was the toughest uh, one. Um, But then there were other interesting challenges. I, I remember... A wonderful quote. I can't believe how naive it was. My my um, first few days, really, in the in the new role, uh, and I, I was uh, essentially a, a specialist that uh, would be able to spot new investments uh, for this venture capital company and uh, due due diligence and so on. Still technical, but you're really thinking about investment. And I asked my um, boss at the time whether I could use my um, MBA toolkit 
to talk to clients and investors and so on. And he said, yeah, you can, but I'll show you the door. <laughs> it's like, um, the point is that um, you kind of go from technical and then you do an MBA, you learn all these kind of toolkits, okay? But uh, in that case, my my then boss uh, was coming from a completely different route, you know, it's kind of financial and so forth. So, I was really thinking like an engineer, you know, like I got your toolkit, you apply like lines of code, right? And then was a, an interesting wake up call for me as I, wow, this is a different game. <laughs> and I remember very well that 10 minutes of that conversation. I said, mm, okay, I learned more in that 10 minutes than probably a few years. <laughs> yeah. You go from the theory and then you go to applying it. And as you say, I <laughs> know from many of the engineer acquaintances that I've met over the years and a couple of friends in that as well, that it is that lack of control that people and the variables that people bring to a role, which is just so different from when you're in control of what you're working on with what yeah. you're developing and engineering yourself. How did you keep yourself, other than this fairly um, striking conversation with your with your boss, Maurizio? I hope he's not listening. One, but <laughs> <laughs> but he, um, how did you then make sure that you were keeping yourself sane, being confident you were doing the right thing? Did you have confidence in the work? Did you use professional people outside of the work? Have you used people that aren't in engineering or business altogether to soundboard against? Because I think sometimes, especially in the modern world, I think people have really seen what the benefit of talking through mm -hmm. things can do for your mental health, but also your confidence in relation to doing what you're doing. How, how did that progression work? Yeah, that's a good point. So we are talking about uh, that, that transition for me was uh, now coming up to 14 years ago. This was pre-LinkedIn, pre-social networks, I will say. Uh, these business uh, social networks that are wonderful now, uh, they did not quite exist. So you rely on personal network, you know, picking up the phone, <laughs> maybe emails and so on, uh, but not quite the same extent as, as one can do now just typing but i think what kept me attached to the previous role uh, maybe it's one of the lessons for people even thinking these sort of transitions in their mid-30s and so on was that it was still it was a job still close to the technology so my familiar world and somehow that gave me um, some reassurance some comfort if you like if you like to some extent the transition was very abrupt in one sense but gradually in another sense because i could use all pretty much every single piece of my technical knowledge and business of technology as well. And before we move on to talking about the, the role that you're doing in digitalization in, in the industry that you're doing it in, Maurizio, I think will be of interest um, to a lot of the listeners in, in our technology space in particular. But just before we move on from that, is there anything different that you'd have done career-wise? Yeah, quite a few things. Maybe some of them I shouldn't <laughs> share. Let, let me put it this way. I had opportunities to keep going on the technical ladder and moving to a sort of CTO type of role uh, quite early on in my career, but I didn't take them for various reasons and so on. So if I went back, I'll probably uh, stick to technical a bit longer. But it's, it's, a, it's a fine line uh, it's with hindsight. Another thing I would have loved to do but it wasn't that fashionable, fashionable at the time. It's actually joining a startup. And so, but now, now um, it's a completely different world now. Now working for a startup is almost normalized. 
But if you're talking 15 years ago, that was still quite quite something quite crazy. And uh, maybe my upbringing um, made me think about a corporate as the you know proper job, if you like. A startup is uh, too much risk or whatever. But in retrospective, um, if you don't take risks when you're young, then at what point, right? So the idea that you're building something, you're part of uh, a small team and you're building something from scratch that does not exist before, competing, the fundraising, launching the product. That challenge, that type of challenge is quite rare in a corporate. Um, and uh, and I'm experiencing uh, later on in my career, but also when I was working venture capital, when I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, okay? Now I'm managing a startup team inside a large organization. We have a total startup culture, uh, really. Um, and it's that I would say almost adrenaline, if you like, of closing, you know, the, your first commercial deal of launching the product and so on. That's quite unique in a startup environment. In fact, I know quite a few people that will never consider a corporate. I, I certainly know from when I was placing the um, the software engineers when I did, I knew it was actually a, a big alarm when there were startup businesses. If you saw someone that had worked for ten years at HP, you didn't qu- you didn't doubt their qualification as an engineer, but they were used to having very defined parameters, whereas, yes. as you'll know now, a small startup environment, you might be doing one thing one minute, but then you're going to be doing something completely different the absolutely, next Absolutely, absolutely. The next thing I, I, I hope you will give us an intro to is the role that you're doing at the moment and the role that you're doing at Safety Tech Accelerator, why that has come into existence, what part of the, the, the technology world does it sit in? And I think that'll be good to kick things off. When I joined Lloyd's Register exactly six years ago, in fact, we wanted to um, help the company move in digital products and services, okay? It's a very traditional company serving traditional sectors. So it's a kind of double problem, right? So the company is quite traditional, but very ambitious, serving very traditional sectors. So to do digital transformation in that context is particularly challenging. And that's why I took the job, um, because it was it was really hard, um, not because it was easy. And um, and so my role was, um, was to work with uh, my CTO um, in setting up the digital innovation practice at the company. And I think I'm incredibly proud of what we did. We helped the company really change in, in culture and, and, and uh, also materially. But at some point, we started to realize that there was there was a big problem in the market. We uh, the world of Lloyd's Register is uh, can be um, captured as, as essentially a company specialized in safety and risk in safety critical industries. Okay, and then we realized that there was a bit of a market failure, really um, a problem with uh, with the adoption of technologies in safety and risk. So essentially, compared to other things that uh, other technologies that affect your um, bottom line or top line and so on, the case for investing in safety and risk technologies was never quite strong uh, with our clients. And we discovered that our clients were even struggling to find what technologies they could adopt to solve their, their challenge. So we decided to do something about it. And we said, maybe we need something that looks like an accelerator that essentially gets our clients and their problems, their challenges they're trying to solve, get them together with the technology ecosystem. And the assumption, the the, the big uh, hypothesis there is that there's plenty of technology, just doesn't get used enough in safety and risk. And so we decided to set up a, a global accelerator that would match demand and supply. And so we created this process where clients with problems, we will match them with technology companies and, as, and, and also uh, try to shape very precise uh, innovation pilots of these technologies with the client in a real setting. It's an interesting timing where it's here of our conversation because as you said before, 
you say safety critical. I don't think there's often loads of people within the technology space that go, oh, that's it. there's loads going on. There's lots of exciting things happening, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's heard about Metaverse. Goodness me, it's, it, it seems yeah, to be everywhere. Written, this, <laughs> they're front and center. But yeah, I watched the pro- program only in the last couple of days, and the, the title was quite straight to the point, Why Ships Crash? And it followed the evergreen large cargo ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. And it gave the whole rundown of the digitalization of what technology was involved to be able to uncover why this got blocked. And I think as we've all seen and probably some of us felt, when you get something like a huge cargo ship that gets stranded for as long as it did, the knock-on effect in supply chains and the prices that we pay for things has an absolutely instant impact effect. And therefore, it was a great eye-opener before we had our conversation a couple of days later to be able to go, this is where digitalization and technology within safety-critical environments really does have quite a very big impact on the everyday workings and lives that we all like and benefit from, et cetera, et cetera. Just talk to me about... When you talk about digitalization within such an established market as safety critical, maybe just give myself as a novice, but other people listening, a bit of an insight into the challenges that are involved with the digitalization within such a um, largely traditional industry. Now, I, I see two types of digitization of industry. It's what I call the IT-driven digitalization. Uh, so essentially, uh, moving from paper to a, a data platform and, uh, you know, moving old uh, IT to the cloud and so forth. So that's one particular type of digitization, which is, is well established. So essentially, um, there are many consulting firms and so on that will work with clients. And then there is the, the I think, much harder part of um if you like starting to digitize particular operation operational processes there's a lot of players trying to get in potentially very very lucrative market the client doesn't know what, what to buy they don't even know exactly whether there is good ROI on this uh this sort of technology so it's not clear exactly uh, uh, for those kind of things that are a bit specific to a sector, even specific to a client in some cases, what the digitization steps are. So on one side, you, you end up with something fairly commoditized, hard, okay, but fairly commoditized. And on the other side, essentially an ecosystem of a lot of problems and a lot of technologies that could, could be quite confusing. If I may, an example of something. <laughs> so I'm not a maritime expert, but um, and and we are we are doing some work in construction and and food safety and so on. So, but uh, this particular example really hit me uh, quite quite hard, not in a good way. I mean, I learned a lot. You know, ship engines are as big as a building, okay, and the the uh, propeller shaft is is enormous, right? It's a massive thing, and it spins very very slowly. If one of those breaks, it's millions. And the ship could be stranded and end up uh, in a, maybe in a big accident. To do predictive analytics on those things is a completely different game. So it's a spinning device, right? And you will say, well, you can apply predictive analytics the same uh, the same way you will do with a pump, right? That's pretty commoditized. You can you can buy now from from various companies, you know, predictive analytics that can predict when a pump is about to break. And you say, well, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's spinning and, 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 and the, the metal wears out and whatever. You can kind of, no, no, big no. Um, somehow the, there is no solution that can really predict this massive uh, multiple tons uh, piece of metal 
when it's, it's about to break down. And so, but that problem is massive uh, for the shipping industry. Every single ship will have a big propeller like that. So the point is, um, these are thousands niches, niches, uh, as, I, as, I, uh, as I call it, poses a massive problem for adoption because there isn't a single solution that works for everything. And that's the industry challenge that we uh, we live in. I wish there was a magic wand for everything, but there isn't. It's an interesting uh, – I always find it fascinating why people take the career choices that they have. Mm-hmm. And what that sounds like to me, Maritza, you're absolutely right. There might be some very, very traditional industries, but actually they pose huge tech technological problems of how about of how you go about solving them. And do you therefore think that it takes a certain type of person to get into such an industry because they've got to be fully prepared? Like as you say, it is a completely different space to metaverse to immersive technology or whatever <laughs> the, the latest, you know, fashionable thing to talk about in the technology world is. But Arguably, there are there are there are some of these things that for someone that really loves problem solving, this is going to be the kind of environment like yourself where you can get a great deal of satisfaction and enjoyment from. So the difference between say a problem like that, and I could list another, you know, dozens problems like that, is that um, it's for insiders really. Unless you are in it, it's quite difficult to really understand the the nuances. Okay, and um, that makes it quite difficult from outside to make significant contribution. So one of the biggest problems of, of industries like that is, um, is that they're in, sometimes impenetrable. So you have people that really understand those assets, but for example, they don't know about a machine learning uh, or deep learning algorithm to predict uh, failures. They just don't know. It's not their job. Uh, on the other side, you have a, an army of potential data scientists that do not understand the problem. And so uh, what we've been doing in my, in my team um, is trying to match the, the people who know the cutting-edge tech with the experts in the assets, domain experts. The dream person is somebody that knows both, but they're quite rare to find. And, and you, <laughs> Peter, you probably know how difficult it is to find top-notch data scientists that also know a particular sector, uh, especially niche ones um so the um the collaboration between domain experts and and data scientists or technologists and so on is probably the the, the fastest route to impact while we wait for a new generation perhaps of um uh, domain experts that also know the latest technologies so it's a, we are going through a transition i think it's going to take uh, maybe a decade for those new domain experts with these new skills to emerge and, and start populating the market. Is, is there any gap, do you feel, in, in how about we go creating the next generation of engineers? And do, do you have any thoughts as to how things could be done for the better? I appreciate it's a fairly big question. It's uh, a big question. Like, I have, um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, my, my son um, is 12 and um, he, he loves coding, though he prefers gaming than coding. But anyway, he kind of likes that. Things are getting easier. Okay, to some extent, but more complicated. So this technology is becoming more accessible. Um, I'm old enough to remember how tough it was to have something running on the cloud or, uh, you know, developing a, a data analytics program. Really, really hard. Now it's getting easier and easier. The tools are getting so good. And there is so much information about how to use them and examples and so forth. So the baseline is going up, but the problems are getting more complicated. And that's the flip side. So essentially, 
baseline for everybody has gone up. So you, you as an individual, as a scientist or a coder can do more, much more. But the demand from the market has gone up as well. So uh, in terms of talent, you know, this might be controversial, but one of the worst things one can do to put off people is, is to make it look easy. And then people get into it and then discover it's hard and then they give up. Imagine the wasted talent and time for a society that does that. And now there is, um, I think there is a, a school of thought that by making computer science and tech and engineering look easy, then more people are attracted to it. And I think it could be counterproductive over time because uh, some some people might might be put off by the uh, when when they discover the complexity might be put off. I think um, I think everyone is failing is to explain how fantastic it is to work in engineering and computer science, how rewarding it is, and how useful for so- society can be. So we're not explaining the the upside of those jobs. We are maybe talking about you know the Elon Musk. How many Elon Musk can we have that creates PayPal and then Tesla and then go to the moon? Not many. Uh, as a role model, is unattainable. But think about uh, the people you place in, in very good jobs and so on. Those stories are real and they're very exciting. And they have incredibly rewarding and well-paid jobs. And those stories are not coming across. A, a young student can really does not understand the nuances of a particular profession. They go with the flashy things, okay? And the reality is to be competitive in today's technology market, so to be in technology, not around technology, which is very different, to be in technology is not an easy job. And neither is medicine, and people go into it. In fact, it's oversubscribed. Like my father said to me years ago, if there's anything worth having, it's going to be tough. These uh, inspirational but real stories, I think, are, um, are personally, I think, are what's missing. A bit of celebrity culture also in technology these days. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, I try to do a little bit my bit um, as being part of the Institute of um, Engineering and Technology Digital Panel, where we discuss these things all the time um, about what we can do for, for young people to make them more excited about technology. The other challenge I will see for the technology sector um, is to be seen as a force for good. And again, this could be controversial because not everyone will, will agree. But um, if you really think about AI for designing drugs, you know, the next uh, generation of drugs, the potential of AI in, in biology and in medicine is just vast. That's just to give one example. But it's still seen as... Um, uh, I think it's still seen a bit intrusive and maybe overpowering and some, some scare stories about jobs uh, disappearing, which is a major uh, criticism, if you like, uh, of the technology world. Well, uh, you know, to be honest, um, I think th- there is there is no clear answer to those questions at the moment. I, I wanted to ask you a couple of big, broad questions, Maurizio, because when you've got someone that's been doing and working in a technology space for, for as long as you have and in as many interesting guises as you have, I wanted to ask you some bigger questions, but we've covered some really interesting things as well in relation to industry, in relation to you know, career paths and bits and pieces. But has there been other, any other book or movie that has, has had a long-lasting impression um, on you? Two books. Uh, uh, one is uh, scientific. The other one is um, science fiction. <laughs> um I, I'm reading a lot these days. In the past, actually, during the lockdown, yes, been doing more reading than I had done in in a decade, probably. Um, one of them is uh, Dune, um, the Frank Herbert uh, masterpiece, and I have to say, um, 
I tried three or four times to read it in my life, and I gave up after chapter three. Too complicated, too busy. But then I really tried to read it um, just before Christmas, and wow. And I read it before going to see the movie, to watch the movie, and um, and that that was like uh, mind blowing, and and I, I, this is very fresh in my mind. Now, on a more scientific um, or more technical matter, I I read a book about six months ago called Other Minds, which is a book, uh, popular science is not uh, very technical, uh, talking about the evolution of octopuses and their brain. <laughs> I wonder why am I reading that book? Well, first of all, it's it's so well written but um why is it why is it interesting um because um octopuses apparently their brain and intelligence evolved in a completely parallel and separate way from our own neural neural system so why is it important is because it's the only piece of evidence that actually intelligence might be a property of life rather than an exception of life that has evolved from the very early uh, animals from which we we um, mammals derive from. Uh, that book uh, explores uh, essentially a completely different brain architecture, and uh, it's it's a little a little piece of evidence that probably there is intelligence life in the universe. So it's not by accident we are intelligent. It sounds fascinating and exactly the kind of book that is always great to hear about in these conversations, Brits. Uh, I think we've all come to appreciate non-lockdown conditions i think we've all appreciated our favorite places in the public world uh, that we can spend an afternoon recharging the batteries reading one of those books Maurizio, or spending it with a loved one um out of all the places on earth be it the uk or further afield um what's the place where you would spend your, uh, a completely free afternoon <laughs> free afternoon so last year during lockdown we got a little allotment very close to where we live and we started to grow vegetables total failure but hey it was the first time i think we'll do better this time but actually my my recent thing is that i my daughter is she's a fairly talented pianist uh, now um still still developing but fairly talented and i promised her that i will do grade five um grade five piano for the listeners uh, listeners who know what that is it's, it's not terribly advanced but it's not that simple so i'm actually starting to um preparing myself for grade five piano can i give just a little tip on this <laughs> i'm trying to. My, my daughter <laughs> so i i got to grade five when i was yeah 12 13 that kind of area my daughters have recently started playing the piano and i thought to myself right I can't be here, not at least being able to help them out or at least be able to do a little bit of tune. So they're like, oh, you know, <laughs> dad can help me. He's not a complete useless old buffoon or whatever it may be. Now, it is definitely, if, if you're um, way past this, I do apologize. But for anyone listening that thinks, I'd like to get started, but how on earth do you start? I don't want to have the cost of a <laughs> piano teacher, et cetera, et cetera. There's this app that I found, and I tried about six different apps out, read about it, recollect, blah, blah. And there's this app called Simply Piano, which goes from the very beginnings of what the right hand does, what the left hand does, the different types of notes. and, and But it does it, of course, as all things do these days, in a game-type form. You can like It listens to the, the notes that you're playing on the piano and the intonation, in, you know, intonation between them. It 
you can have different settings that you, you go through your own learning journey then you log you, you switch your profile when you have your daughter they can choose their character and they do pop songs as well as some classical favorites <laughs> That's you can cool. it is a very very cool thing and for anyone as I say, maybe you're um, already past that, Maurizio, but it takes it to quite a complex <laughs> level. Yeah. That's my challenge for the next uh, few months is trying to get to a point where I can maybe just about pass the uh, the, <laughs> the, the the exam. Uh, it's a bit of a crazy thing, but I kind of it's, it's a bit of a bet really with my daughter that I'll get uh, to uh, to pass grade five. She's she's past grade eight. She's, she's preparing for diploma now, so uh, she's way, way, I can't I can't follow her anymore. But um, yeah, that's my challenge. I'm a little crazy game this year <laughs> <laughs> i like it i like it a lot well um um mauricio thank you so much uh, for sharing your journey and your leadership learns with us today um, i'm sure there's a lot will resonate with the listeners and like me they'll be taking away some valuable ideas thank you everyone for listening if you enjoyed the episode please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network mauricio thanks so much for coming on today thank you peter 